it's a lot easier to start out winning than start out getting your ass kicked. If you jump right into NFL size, you're probably going to get your ass kicked. If you spend a year or two in the small markets, find some edges, get some experience, and then you want to move up, that'd be the way to do it. Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and this week we've got perhaps the most uniquely qualified guest in the world for a betting and beer podcast, pro better and owner of Salty Turtle Beer Company in Surf City, North Carolina. In fact, joining us live from Salty Turtle, Zach White. Welcome to Props and Hops. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you having me there. Thanks for the kind words. Absolutely. It's such a blast to have you on and I'll take some uh, clips so people can see on Twitter and some social media platforms what the background looks like. The best background I've seen on this podcast with all the tanks going in the background from the brewery. Also, certainly some good betting topics we can cover off on. But first things first, what are you drinking today? Uh, I've got uh, La Cerveza Mexican Lager, one of our um, best summertime, like easy drinking beers. All right. And thanks to your generosity, I've got a can of it as well. And normally when I would get ready to crack a can on this show, I would explain it to the audience. Um, but you just described it pretty well. A light, easy drinking lager, pretty good for summertime. Um, as I get ready to crack my can, any other info on La Cerveza and what people might expect if they're going to be trying it? Yes. So our brewery is uh, like a half a mile from the beach. So this is one of our uh, most popular summertime boat beers, beach beers. Four and a half percent ABV, light, easy drinking, a little bit of lime zest to it. Very, very popular beer in the summertime. Beautiful. All right. Well, on that note, I'll crack this guy open. Cheers, Zach. Cheers. All right. Yeah, I would say your description definitely hit the nail on the head. Wouldn't expect any less from you running the show over there. And as we talk about the two pillars of the show, betting and beer, wanted to kick it off by asking, which did you fall in love with first, betting or beer? <laughs> Well, Matt, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, so, uh, you know, when I turned 21 in legal gambling age and legal drinking age, you know, the craft, craft beer boom hadn't really taken off yet, um, so I definitely fell in love with gambling first. Um, I didn't really get huge into the craft beer scene until a few years after I had moved out in Las Vegas. Um, 2015, I started a, a beer tourism company out there called Vegas Craft Beer Tours, and that's what really got me into the uh, craft beer industry. Awesome. Well, there's a lot to cover, again, both within the gambling world and the beer side of things. But with betting having been your first love, I'd love to get into your background on the gambling side of things. You mentioned um, some adventures out in Las Vegas. How did it all get started for you? Yeah, so um, in college, I was a poker player. Um, I went to Appalachian State in, uh, in the mountains of North Carolina. And um, you may know some of my other partners, um, Ed Teach, Mark DeRosa, uh, he, he graduated the same year as me. I met him up there. Um, a few other people um, that were just gambling minds. Um, and we kind of just, you know, we, we were doing some things involved. Like this was back, you know, mid-2000s. The online bonus abuse, the online casinos were happening, online poker rooms. Um, and then I was, I was a Carolina guy born and bred, so I was kind of immersed in this sort of NASCAR since a young age. And um, – once I realized you could bet on it, you know, 
I, um, I kind of took to that really quickly. And uh, me and another guy kind of, that's what kicked off the sports betting side of uh, my gambling career. And I know there are a lot of different ways that people have found success in betting or for those that don't do it professionally or turn a profit over time, different ways that people still find a way to enjoy it as a hobby. Overall, how would you describe your personal approach to betting? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of work, like anything else. Um, I've uh, been lucky to surround myself with some really smart people um, over the years. And, and, um, and, and how I started out betting is, is a lot different from, from the peak of my betting a few years ago and, and how I bet now. Um, my personal approach to betting is always get the best number and, and, and be sure your data is good. Uh, because you know you're paying a paying a high price, you, you've got to be able to overcome the vig. It's a, a, a long process. You got to have good money management, uh, trusting your numbers. Um, it's not something that's a lot of people just easily fall into. It, it takes a ton of work, um, but it can be pretty lucrative. When it comes to getting the best number, working with good data, managing your money, a few things that you touched on, I feel like those are points that are, you know, the mark of somebody who knows what they're doing in this whole endeavor, you know, being very mindful of those factors. But for people listening to this conversation who, you know, might be in, I like to categorize it to borrow a term from Drew Dinsick, the whale capper, and Andy Molitor on the deep dive pod, they mentioned the rec plus betters. A lot of people who hear, you know, getting the best of the number, working with good data, managing your bankroll. Um, it makes sense conceptually, but can be hard to think of in concrete terms for people who are up and coming as betters. Is there anything you can shed light on, on any of those topics that might make it a little bit more tangible for people who want to get better in any of those areas? Sure. I mean, I, I think you, you talk about the rec plus better. I've heard you use that term plenty of times and I love it. I think it's a great, uh, great way to pacify some betters that are looking to not lose their ass, but might, maybe not looking to quit their job and go at it pro um, at the same time. But, you know, the, the, one of the first things I said was, you know, getting the best number. And that's the easiest thing you could do uh, as a better is, is to line shop a little bit. Um, I've seen people that work, you know, 80 hours a week, come up with a model that they think beats college football by two and a half, three percent, but then they won't drive across town to get the plus seven and a half because and, and, they'd rather just click one button and get the plus seven at Circa or whatever. And then if you took, you know, if, if you could just, instead of taking 10 dimes at plus seven, take a little bit of extra effort, get three at plus seven and a half, three at plus seven minus one and five, do some derivative stuff, maybe take plus four and a half first half, find some money line equivalent. You double that double that edge right there. Just just by taking a little bit of time and line shopping, finding the best price, doing some derivative pricing, that type of thing can really, really boost your edge. Um, and that's that's what I always recommend. You know, like, even when I'm experimenting with a new market and something that I'm not even sure, uh, I'm not confident myself that um that I really have the edge that I think I do on it, or that the, the model is saying I do on it. I'll, a lot of times, just go ahead and start executing it anyhow, because as long as I'm getting that best price, you know, as long as I'm getting a close to, close to a fair market price, how bad could it be? You know, so um, you, you take this opportunity now when you have all these apps, you don't even have to leave your house. Like back in the day, I used to have to drive all around the valley. It would take me three hours to get everywhere, but I wasn't going to let a, a good number slide. Um, and now you can just do it all from your phone. So, you know, sign up for that extra account, you know, take that extra time and find, find that reduced use, find that... Um, you know, derivative price that makes your makes your side or your angle a little bit better. And that's a great way to uh, increase your return right there. Spoken like the mark of a bet bash attendee, I want to touch on the fact that we were fortunate to meet there. Geez, at this point, it's, it's coming up soon on two months ago. Can't believe it's already uh, come and gone by that much time. But I think the first time we met was at a, a really great dinner at 8 East after the stadium swim final four watch party. 
And then we hung out again during the college basketball championship game at the Circus Sportsbook. I was doing a bit of an underground beer share, and you were the perfect person to share some of those beers with. And you returned the favor tenfold with a very generous shipment of some salty turtle as well as other cans from the East Coast. So um, I really appreciated that. But something while we're still talking betting here would be a panel at Bet Bash that you were featured on, The Art of Sports Betting, alongside some other heavyweights in the industry. And I know that Spanky isn't going to be releasing the conversations from the panels publicly, so I, I don't want to divulge too much here. But I do think we can give listeners a bit of a peek behind the curtain. And there were two points that I recall you making that stuck with me from that panel. First up, could you elaborate on a concept that you understand when it comes to the hidden value of accounts with low limits? Even though people get banned or limited, and that can be frustrating, it's not necessarily the end of the road at that sportsbook. Right. Yeah, I know I touched on that briefly. A few people asked me about it, and it's, it's um, you know, I, I kind of felt bad because, you know, the, the, we were the last panel of the day, and every single panel I just bashed on the, on the uh, books, limiting people. And, you know, I don't think that's what the, uh, the entire conference was supposed to be about, but it ended up what we always talked about was, like, how unfair it is that the, the books will limit you to something so negligible. Um, but I mentioned the hidden valley of a, of a limited account. A lot of times the first thing people do when they get limited from somewhere especially these books that'll give you the super tiny low limit, $4, $3, whatever, $10 and two cents, um, is they'll just withdraw all their money and go on to the next one um, or sign up their buddy or, or you know, move on to the next book or, or give up or whatever. Um, but a lot of times the way these newer books, these new legal U.S. books, um, profile players and the, the people behind the scenes that might not be quite as good at their job as, as they think they are. So there might be still some value left in those little small accounts, you know, that you've basically been limited to, you know, um, you know, but maybe, maybe right before you got limited, they had, they had flagged your, your account as a shark or they had flagged your account as a steam chaser or however they labeled you. Um, so the first thing you should try is like, you know, maybe if I hit this for, you know, $6.82 or whatever the limit is, like what happens to the line? Is, is there any reaction at all? And I've seen in several cases, but that's all it takes. They, they've already flagged your account to auto move or auto alert a trader, you know, that there's some action coming in on the sharp side. You know, they might not be paying attention to the fact that, you know, the, the action was only $6. You know, it's just like, hey, that, this sharp account just hit, you know, Texas A&M. Hey, we should take a look at that price. Um, the second way is, you know, maybe you and all three or four of your buddies have all gotten limited to a few, a few pennies. And, you know, take a chance. See what happens if all you hit the same side at once for $5 or whatever the limit be. Now the, now the book sees, oh, man, we just got four bets on Texas A&M within 12 seconds of each other. Man, there's something going on here. We should take a look. You know, and, and then if you get that move, if you pause that move and manipulate that market just a half a point or 10 cents or something, and you have another account where you can bet the side you really want, which is the other side of Texas A&M, then you just created a 3% more value for yourself. Um, it's a lot of people would, you know, this would have been a great topic to bring up on the ethics of sports betting panel out there at, um, at BetBash because, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's kind of, you know, you're, you're manipulating the numbers, you're playing their games. My argument is that they've already basically, you know, told you to screw off and they haven't given you a fair shot. They're not giving you a fair limit. So, you know, it's, it's all, it's all fair at this point, you know, like if, if they're going to give you and play those games and give you those little gimmicky uh, um, numbers, but they leave themselves you know, open to some manipulation on that level, then, you know, they did it to themselves. Yeah, to quote Spanky, either you're going to deal with me or you're going to deal with me. So there are ways <laughs> to find some creative solutions here. And when you talk about trying to move a number and then play the side you really want on a different account, are you referring to doing that 
through a different account that you can somehow access again in a creative way with that same book or trying to get a book to move a number so that other books follow suit and then you can bet accordingly into other accounts with other sports books. Yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not even another a book watching the screen or whatever. Sometimes some of these books are all ran by the same technology partner on the back end. So a move, if you get that Texas A&M number to move at one book, then you know these other skins that copy those same numbers are all going to move too. So now you don't even have to have a friend or a second account or whatever. You could be, it could be your account. You, you, your, your account that hasn't got limited at this new book or whatever, you're going to come back and get that, get that side that you wanted. Um, it's, it's a shame that these, these, uh, a lot of these legal bookmakers can't come up with any better talent or any better um, operating strategy than, than just shutting these accounts down to nothing. Um, but they have, you know, by doing it and doing it in a stupid way, they have kind of opened themselves up to some market manipulation tactics. Your answer here might have covered off on the second question I had for you as well about a point that you made on the Bet Bash panel. But let me know if there's anything else that you care to elaborate on when it comes to kind of building on the hidden value of accounts with low limits, the concept of books banning sharp betters and how that's not necessarily the same thing as banning sharp action. Well, I've always said, um, and this, this has been happening for years and years. You got to remember, I've been a better for 17 years. I saw the very first iterations of, you know, the, you know, kind of like an online book, you know, the Leroy's of the Valley was you submit a, a, a bet. It goes to a trader somewhere else and they say, yes or no, you get the bet. And that was kind of the first time that people really started just doing the, the trickery and whatnot with the, um, you know, messing with sharp betters or moving the number, moving on air denying your action and taking them and then moving the number somewhere else. Um, and I've always said, you know, like if, if, just because you threw me out or just because you gave me such a low limit, you know, banning the sharp player does not make the sharp bet go away. Um, if you don't see me come in there, say it's NFL props and I come in and people know that I've been NFL props for years and I beat them and I make a play on something, they're probably just going to move the number and they're probably going to move it pretty hard. And that would be a smart play. But if they throw me out, then that number is still hanging there. Somebody's going to bet it, whether it's somebody I sent in there or whether it's somebody else who's pretty sharp. And now you don't have that history. You don't know that that was a really sharp play. You just know a guy that came in and bet it for the limit. How hard should I move it? Well, if, if they had let me bet it, then they would know how hard they should move it and they should react accordingly. So, you know, banning the sharp players, you're not, you're not sharpening your line. You're not doing anything for the bottom line of your house because that sharp bet is still going to get bet. I think we've already covered a lot of ground that this audience can benefit from. But if we zoom out just a little bit and think again of somebody, you know, maybe driving, working out, getting through their workday somewhere, listening to this conversation, considers themselves to be, you know, in that rec plus better category. Any other advice you would share for somebody at that stage of their journey, knowing that you were once in a similar spot and have gotten to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. On top of the always price shopping, finding the best price, that's the easiest way. Uh, start in small markets. Um, it's crazy how many people jump out there and the first thing they want to do is bet NFL sides and the college football sides and killing it. You know, like that's, that's, you, you're basically trying to take down Goliath like all at once. Like it's, it's better to start with something small. Maybe you can't bet as much on it, but maybe if you're just starting out, you're probably not trying to bet as much on it either. So you pick something, something that's got nickel limits, something that the bookmakers aren't watching that close. You dive into it. You learn how to take data. You learn how to find good information and put it into a model or put it into a projected win probability figure out a house edge and bet into that market for a while until you get comfortable. But man, I, I feel like I really destroyed the women's lacrosse this year. And maybe I want to take on men's lacrosse next year. Maybe I want to take on women's soccer next year. 
you know, who knows? It, it's it's a lot easier to start out winning than start out getting your ass kicked. You know, so if, if you jump right into NFL size, you're probably going to get your ass kicked. Um, if you you know if, if you spend a year or two in the small market, find some find some edges, get some experience, learn how to manage your money, learn how to do those derivatives trading. You know, kind of see the ups and downs of sports betting, and then you want to move up, and that's that's that'd be the way to do it. Um, you know, you, you don't want to come out trying to take down NFL right off the start. As you talk about starting in small markets, I'm reminded of the notion that despite what the craft beer industry is today across the country, especially where we are on both coasts, it seems like a really big industry, but it hasn't always been that way. So as we transition into the hoppy side of this equation, so to speak, I'd love to hear about your background in beer as well. I know you fell in love with beer after gambling, but uh, it seems like you have taken on, you know, quite quite an undertaking with the Salty Turtle team. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a fun road. Um, a little background. Um, we had dinner with Aaron Kessler, the former book manager of the Golden Nugget. And out there in Vegas, he used to do a, a bottle share at his house, you know, every other Sunday or something like that. We'd all get together and, and try to find some unique beer and, and, and bring it and pop it and share it. Um, and I met a guy there, Steve, who um, we ended up opening uh, Vegas Craft Beer Tour together. This was right when Vegas started getting some more breweries that were um, popping up. And so we would take some um, some tourists behind the scenes, you know, let them meet the brewmaster, let them see the process, do some tastings here and there, um, and drop them back off on the strip. Um, so I did that a couple years before I, um, I decided <laughs> – well, I lived in Vegas for um, 11 years total, but I was out there for about um, five years before I really got sick of the summers. Um, the, the heat in Vegas in June, July, August is just miserable. And um, about 2013, I decided to um, quit betting baseball, so I didn't need to be out there in the summertime. I bought a vacation house here in North Carolina where I'm from. And, um, and then a year or so later, I heard a couple of guys were trying to open a brewery here. Um, so I, um, I reached out to them and just, you know, um, see if they see what their plans were and tell them, I think it's a great idea. Do you guys need any help? Are you looking for any um, advice or any investment or anything? And, um, these are two Marine veterans that are my partners in this deal. And, uh, it turns out they were looking for a little, uh, a little extra help and it's, uh, it turned out to be a great, uh, partnership. Uh, we're going on four and a half years now. Um, we started with three employees, um, you know, we, we hired three bartenders back in December 2017. Um, and then one of the other, uh, one of the Marine veterans I was talking about, he made all the beer. The other guy ran the front of house. I was out, back out to Vegas except for the very peak of summer. Um, and then it just exploded. Uh, we were the only craft beer, um, uh, craft brewery in town. And uh, we quickly outgrew the initial system that we put in here. Um, so we expanded it uh, very quickly and, uh, fast forward to today, we're looking to expand again. We just bought some more land um, in a neighboring town where we'll build a, um, a huge production facility. We'll, it'll be the home for Salty Turtle for a very long time where we can make plenty of beer. Um, yep, it's been quite the ride. We have 24 employees now, which is hard to believe. Um, it's, um, it's been quite the ride. So we sell, we sell our beer not just here in the tap room, but we um, distribute to some, um, some uh, regional towns here um, and do some canning and stuff too. Yeah, and I'm really thankful from firsthand experience that you do some canning because I'm really enjoying this can of La Cerfeza. And aside from the quality of the beer, I think the can art you guys make, any of the merch, you have really cool artwork to go along with it. How did you guys settle on the name Salty Turtle and how has the aesthetic come into being to kind of align with the beer that you guys make? 
Uh, so this this um, island that we're close to, the beach island, is called Topsail Island or Topsail, as locals call it. Um, it is a sea turtle sanctuary. Um, there's a, a sea turtle hospital, uh, one of the biggest on the east coast, which is just um, a few hundred yards away from the brewery. Uh, the area is very sea turtle focused. Um, it made sense to try to tie into that. The original name for the company was going to be Loggerheads um, because Loggerhead sea turtles are the most common, but there's some craft breweries named Loggerheads, L-A-G-E-R. We didn't want to run into any sort of trademark and copyright type issues. Um, so keeping with the sea turtle theme, um, Salty Turtle just kind of, that was the next thing to come out of it. And then of course the logo design, you know, like I said, we're, we're a tourist town. People love to go home with a feature mer piece of merchandise that has the, um, has where they vacation that on it or has a cool logo, a cool design. And, and in the summertime, 25% of our sales go to Zapping more merchandise. Um, you know, some of our bartenders say they feel like they're working at the Gap sometimes. You know, if people come in and they don't even try to do it. They just want to, to buy some t-shirts and stuff. So uh, it's having a really cool logo and a really a connection with the community's um, favorite uh, sea turtle uh, is, has, has been really beneficial. And that might help to answer the next question I wanted to run by you, but I know that craft beer has become a pretty saturated industry, you know, a lot of competition in some big marketplaces across the country these days. How do you think the Salty Turtle team can break through some of the clutter and really resonate with a lot of audiences that might not be, you know, local to your neck of the woods? Yeah, I, I think um, staying local is probably our, our number one goal. At least staying coastal, you know, it's a coastal theme. Um, we are we are going to see some competition in this next year, you know, in our direct, our direct little community here. We've, we've enjoyed being the only brewery around for a while, but we do have some more um, competition, some more um, people coming down the pipe that are going to open breweries. But, you know, just uh, 45 minutes south of here is um, a town called Wilmington, North Carolina. And, and, you know, they haven't had any problem. You know, they open, you know, four or five more breweries every single year. And every single one of them seems to be doing just fine. A lot of people aren't, you know, are, are kind of predicting that the craft, beverage and your craft beer industry in particular is going to kind of flatten maybe craft spirits pick up where they left off but it's just not something we've seen yet um i think our long-term goal is to is to stay local as possible um if we open some additional tap rooms they will also be in small coastal communities um where we can try to connect with the locals um and also do like you know um sea turtle themed seasonal uh summertime beers like that's the type of like going to the beach on vacation uh beers that cater to that audience um and then, you know, we, um, we didn't really get into canning too much until the, the pandemic happened. That was pretty much driven. You know, we had to shut down our tap room. Well, I want to keep all the production staff employed. Let's keep making beer. Let's just can as much of it as possible. And we'll send it out. Um, once we did that, you know, it was a good way to move the beer then. But then the tap room opened back up. And now we're, we're suddenly looking at capacity issues where, you know, the, the grocery stores and the bottle shops and the restaurants didn't stop ordering. You know, um, they, they, they kept wanting more cans. Um, and we just got to a point where we couldn't keep up. So we actually have to contract brew a little bit of beer now just to bridge that gap. And that's why we're looking for the next next stage to, to expand and to be able to can a wider variety of our stuff and reach some reach some other markets that might not have gotten uh, been able to try the Salty Turtle brand yet. And when you mentioned contract brewing, I, you could explain that so much better than I could. We don't need to get into the weeds, but that's essentially running into capacity issues at the existing place. So using equipment and space, you know, at other breweries to crank out Salty Turtle beer, not necessarily brewed on premise at Salty Turtle. Is that correct? That's correct. So this system behind me is um, a seven barrel brew house and we double batch into some um, 15 barrel tanks. Uh, we run it. 
if we run it at capacity and, and we're out of space, we can't add any more. We just physically are, are constrained by the space we're in right now. Um, and we run it at capacity, we can make about 1,250 barrels a year, uh, which is a good amount of beer for a smaller, you know, small town brewery. But we can sell all that through the tap room alone. Um, just, you know, right here, this one tap room that we have. So then you look into a situation where like all these, these bottle shops and restaurants and, and grocery stores and stuff that have been used to getting our product, selling it in cans, selling it by the four pack. Um, we, we had to go the contract route to keep, to keep all those customers happy. Um, contract brewing comes with its own set of headaches. You know, you, you lose a little bit of the quality control aspect of your beer. Um, it's frustrating. We've had to dump some down the drain and there's nothing more painful than that. Um, but, you know, it's quality first, so it's, sometimes it's the right decision to dump it down the drain. Um, it's something that, that's the, this, it's a big motivating factor for us to go ahead and get this next project underway, and that way we can get fully in control of our beer again, not have to worry about this. This batch tastes exactly the way it's supposed to, um, and sometimes, you know, that's just the way, that's just one of the problems you have to deal with in contract brewing. There's some breweries that all they do is contract brewing. They, they um, work with somebody else's equipment, they make all their beer there, and if it's close enough, you could you could have a lot more control. You could have either every step of the way, um, you know, from brew day to when we're checking the first gravity to when you're dry hopping to when you're moving it to the bright tank. If you're there every single step of the process, then maybe you feel like you still have plenty of control over your beer. But if your contract facility is hours away, you're not always going to be there, and you're not always going to be able to say, well, did this guy dry hop at the right time? Did he do the right amount? Um, and then it comes into troubleshooting, like this beer didn't come out tasting right. What did we do wrong? What did they do wrong? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a frustrating experience. So it's something we're definitely trying to get away from, but it's necessary right now um, due to the customers that we onboarded uh, during the pandemic. So it sounds like, a, yes, it sounds like a challenge, but probably a good challenge to have nonetheless, because there seems to be quite a bit of demand for your beer. And I'd love to drill in a bit on your philosophy and your team's philosophy overall when it comes to which styles you make, which individual beers you make within those styles. How would you describe Salty Turtle's approach to yeah, cranking out whatever people might end up seeing on your beer board? Right. So um, we have four, four of what we call our flagship beers that are, that are on all the time year-round. Um, our Kolsch, which is our number one bestseller, very light uh, German ale, good for the beach as well, but it's a little bit stronger, 6%. Um, Haze, of course, the New England style IPAs are still very, very popular. Our Haze brand is our number two seller. Uh, we do a brown ale called Barnacle Bills, and we do a Swing Bridge breakfast out with a little bit of coffee and vanilla in it. And those are the four we keep on all the time. So you got a wide range there. you got an IPA, you got a middle of the road, multi brown ale, you got a light uh, Kolsch, and a dark uh, uh, stout. Um, the rest of the stuff is, is very seasonal, so we'll, we'll do more stouts in the wintertime. And then as soon as the weather starts warming up, whoops. Like I said, uh, AirPod down. Know, we're, we're very, very seasonal. So um, we do a ton of light beers in the summertime. Uh, a lot of tourists, day trippers, people come for the week on vacation. They're looking for beers to, to take to the beach with them, to take out on the boat with them. So we do some lagers. We do a lot of that Kolsch. Um, Mexican lager is a big, really big seller. Um, and then, of course, we're just swinging, uh, keeping the IPAs fresh, making those and, and playing with different um, styles. I know I sent you one of those West Coast IPAs that you really like. Here we sell yes. a lot more of the hazies on the East Coast. Yeah, Yacht Club is a very good beer. Um, we do a ton of the, um, the East Coast style too, the hazy IPAs. So um, those are best fresh. So we, we kind of play with the, the recipes, let our head brewer um, tweak them and keep it fresh. Um, and then we'll bring back the favorites, of course, year round. 
Love it. Well, from West Coast to the East Coast style, the IPAs that you sent me uh, have just been able to go toe-to-toe with pretty much any other brewery's take on either style. So I really appreciated that. And I want to make sure that in knowing that if people aren't just visiting your tap room, there's some distribution. If some of the audience might be interested in finding out where they could get your beer or some of the really cool looking merch, where can people go to check that out? Yeah, so the, the merch can ship anywhere. Um, you can order that on at uh, saltyturtlebeer.com. Um, our distribution reach, if you're outside of the North Carolina area, you're probably not going not, not gonna to find any. We, right now, we're going out um, about as far west as the Raleigh uh, Research Triangle, Raleigh-Durham area, basically. Um, and then we're down in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is just south of us. And then up towards Jacksonville, North Carolina, which is where the military base is. And then there's Emerald Isle, Cape Carteret, that area, which is um, the coastal towns further north from there. Um, that's pretty much the region we're distributing in right now. That won't change. Um, that won't change much until we, we're able to make more beer and reach more markets. And is there a vision once you have the new facility up and running? I know you mentioned wanting to, you know, take care of the locals. And I certainly hear that from a lot of breweries. Makes a lot of sense. But once you have a bigger facility up and running, is there a plan to widen the scope of the distribution footprint? Absolutely. Uh, you know, my sales guy, he, he's constantly asking for more beer. You know, we have to kind of allocate how much beer he can sell because we can't choke off what, what we can't choke off the tap room. Once I can, I can give him as much beer as he wants. We, we're, we've talked about doing a, um, another distribution center, more, more locally, uh, more centrally located in the state. So we can reach markets like Charlotte and the, and the mountains of North Carolina, the triad, Piedmont triad. Um, and that'll all just come as, as we move into a new facility, we can crank out as much beer, and then decide how we're going to package it. We want to do a lot of keg beer, a lot of canned beer. Um, and, and that's going to be based on customer demand once we get into those new markets. I've got to ask you one more beer question. Pivoting away from Salty Turtle for a moment, what would you say is your favorite non-Salty Turtle beer to enjoy personally? Um, I still like to keep it local. Um, I know you brought some really good West Coast beers out there. Um, the Elder and, you know, a few of those guys and, and you're a LA guy, right? So Stone and all yep. those guys down in Southern California, man, it's, it's hard not to love those beers, those classics. Um, but I like to keep it local. I'm a big North Carolina guy. So we have some really, really amazing local breweries down in Wilmington. Um, I like New Anthem down there a lot. Bill's Brewing down there. Out in Raleigh, Trophy, um, Bearded Bee in Wilmington. We actually did a little collaboration with them. They kind of have the same theme as us. You know, we, we donate a little bit of our profits to sea turtle conservation they donate a little bit of their profits to um you know honeybee preservation and and uh efforts that that way so um, those are always cool uh collaborations to do that that, that benefit a greater good um been out in charlotte i love um uh wooden robot um and you know out in vegas you know i lived out there for a long time tanea creek is still one of my favorites um, i love going down there to that tap room and, and they've, they've always made some really good beer Absolutely. Is that is Tanea Creek one in the Arts District area of Vegas? Tanea Creek's down there off Bonanza, not far from uh, downtown. Um, gotcha. And then the Arts District has a bunch of new ones. I like the Huddle, um, and then there's Nevada Brew Works and uh, Atomic. What's the uh, Abel Baker? Abel Baker, Abel Baker, Baker, Baker Atomic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, you know, Vegas has changed a lot, man. When we were doing the tour there was still only like 10 breweries, 10 craft breweries that we were rotating around taking the, um, the, the tour guides or the tours to. And, 
And now, just in the past few couple of years, there's been a lot more pop-up and a lot of good stuff happening out there. Yeah, and while we're on Vegas beer for a moment, I'll also add, this might have been beyond the purview of your tours, but for people who could venture out just a little bit, probably 15 minutes or so from the Strip, going toward Henderson, Craft House, and Bad Beat in the same industrial park, a nice little one-two punch. So if anybody's out in that neck of the woods, would highly recommend, you know, you go to one and you can walk about 20 feet and hit up the other in the same journey. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a distillery out there too now, if I recall correctly, craft distillery. I think so. Yeah, Henderson's got its own nice little scene brewing as well. Well, as you described the collaborations that you guys have done with some of the breweries in your area, I had a thought that might be drawing a bit of a parallel back to betting, where there are probably varying degrees of competition and collaboration necessary to have everybody make the most out of this endeavor in the long run. Are there any connections you would draw between your life as a pro better and your life as a brewery owner when it comes to knowing who you're competing against and also finding the right opportunities to collaborate with some of those same people? <laughs> you know, right off the top of my head, this is funny. We were just having this discussion the other day. It's like, you know, hop varietals have, have kind of become in short supply in certain types. So it's like, you know, you, you got to be the first one to the market to, to get a certain type of hop sometimes. So it's just kind of like betting, you know, you got to be the first one to the good number if you want to go ahead and lock your contract in. Um, but as far as the competition and stuff goes, actually breweries are pretty, pretty friendly towards each other, man. Um, you know, there's competition coming, you know, competition going. A lot of people uh, consider like areas where there's a lot of breweries in concentration to be almost like a tourist attraction. So uh, because you have a couple of competitors right next door, like you mentioned out in Henderson, you know, where people can walk between them, that kind of becomes a, a marketing draw in itself. Hey, we can go down there and we can try – uh, bad beat. If we don't like that, we can walk over the craft house. You know, so uh, there's not there's not a ton of uh, like really cutthroat competition in the craft beer industry. In fact, most of the people I've met, you know, have been more than willing to help you out, share some information, um, and you know, kind of compare notes. Whereas, you know, in the in the gambling business, like I I, I can't tell anybody anything too good, or they'll go out and bet it, and then it'll be gone. So it's two different worlds there. So without making you tell anybody something that you can't divulge as a better, I'd like to weave in the Malinsky minute to this conversation. Dave Malinsky, aside from being a legendary sports better, really had a love for betting and beer. But as far as I knew, he kept both of those interests separate for the most part. And I'm wondering for you, it's not that easy to separate these things when you're a professional better and a brewery owner. So in your walk of life, how do you go about compartmentalizing and making sure that you can maximize both of those worlds? Um, well, first of all, like, um, my 17 years as a sports better um, has drastically changed um, in the past, you know, five or six or seven years. Um, there was a time where I was working seven days a week, um, 10 hours a day, and we were betting every single sport across the board. Um, I worked with Rufus Peabody and a few guys for a long time, and they were in a lot of sports that I didn't necessarily personally handicap, but I was I was part of the group, so I was helping them bet it and execute and all that stuff. But, it, you know, it, it's a drain. You know, you can't work that long forever. Um, and then I had a – I got married. I had a kid, and I got two kids now. Um, and now in, in the past, uh, about two and a half years ago, I, I moved from Las Vegas. So I don't live out there full time anymore. In fact, I'm not even visiting that much anymore now that I've got closer options on the East Coast to go bet. So, you know, the amount of time I spend on sports betting now, I've scaled down to the most lucrative stuff for me. Um, and that's always been the NASCAR betting, um, the NFL props, and futures. Um, so I, I get a big part of spring and summer um, where there's not, I'm not working, you know, that many days a week on sports. So 
I have been focusing a lot of time on the turtle, which is weird because, you know, I, when you're looking at it from a monetary standpoint, you know, there's, there's no comparison. The hours that I spend sports betting, I make a tremendous amount more than the hours I spend um, at the brewery. But, you know, that all could change. There's a long-term goal. Um, and, and, the, and the short-term goal for me is to not work um, 60 hours a week anymore, uh, spend some time with family, have some days off. Um, so I have scaled back uh, sports betting a lot. Um, it's still, I think I'm still picking off the best of the best, um, which is good. Um, but, you know, you might not see me out there, you know, betting, um, you know, betting hockey and betting NBA anymore or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm picking and choosing my sides um, and spreading my time around, around more. When you mentioned scaling back in recent years and having worked with a, a lot of sharp guys in the past, I know you still do to this day, but you mentioned Rufus, and I've just got to hope that not working as much with him in an official capacity anymore could have spared you the agonizing loss on his 300-1 to ticket on Pereira to win the PGA Championship, only to double bogey the final hole and come up just short. Um, did you yeah. suffer that bad beat as well, or, or how does that go for you if you're betting any golf at all these days? No, I was just talking to him about it, but we, um, we did a little Calcutta together. And, um, you know, Rufus, he's been doing it a long time, too. You know, I, I met Rufus uh, after, like, the second, the first or second year I lived out in Vegas is when I met Rufus. And um, he's got a lot of experience, you know, and if you do it long enough, you're going to have a lot of those beats. And believe me, it's not the first, you know, six-figure letdown that he's had on the golfer. Uh, you could ask him about Spencer Levin or – Kyle Stanley, holy crap, that's a heck of a story. That could be a podcast of itself um, as far as meltdowns on the golf course. You know, he, he's, he's a professional. He's used to it. You know, it hurts for a day. You, you get up, you, you start again the next day, and you, and you move on. Um, you know, it, it, this is something, you know, after I've been married for 11 years, and, and you know, my wife, you know, she's learned, you know, if, if I'm looking in a bad mood on Sunday, you know, just, just give it till Monday, you know, like it, it's going to be fine. I'm just going to need, a, you know, a sleep to get over this and, and I'll be fine on Monday and move right on. Yeah. Spoken like a true professional yourself, Zach, I want to make sure to plug your work so people know where they can follow you and the Salty Turtle. Uh, from a betting standpoint, people can follow Zach on Twitter at Gamble Balls. I love that name. From a beer standpoint, Salty Turtle on Instagram, at Salty Turtle Beer. And I saw recently a post about a run club. So that's a cool way for some of the community if they want to earn their beer before indulging or not. If you'd rather just enjoy the beer, you know, go that route too. But Instagram, at Salty Turtle Beer. Zach, is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? No, that's it, man. I really appreciate you having me on, man. It's been fun talking. Um, I remember when I, when I, uh, we, we met out in Vegas and, Pops and hot spot. I was like, man, how am I just hearing about this? This is perfect. <laughs> I've got to get yeah, on well, this thing. I had to ask myself how I was just hearing about you because, again, a pro better and a brewery owner, it doesn't get any better than that for the cross-section of the props and the hops. And on that note, I want to thank everybody for listening to this conversation. If you'd enjoyed it, the number one way you can support the show is to take just a few seconds and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Zach, once again, thanks for your time. I can't wait to see you again at Bet Bash 3, if not sooner somehow. And in the meantime, maybe we can arrange a beer trade or two. Yeah, let's, uh, let's send some beer back and forth, quietly. <laughs> <laughs>